As usual, if you don't have a handout tonight, slip up your hand and uh, we can bring one to you. So if you did not grab a handout on your way in and you would like to have one, uh, we can bring one to you in your seat. Just slip up your hand. Good to see you all here tonight as we work through the book of Philemon. Some people are wondering why we took three weeks to do what we could have done in one uh, with this short book. And so uh, we're coming to the end of our semester. We came down to the end. We had Ecclesiastes. So then we had to say, what can we fit in a couple of weeks before Christmas? And so we found a short book of the Bible that we could study for just a couple of weeks. And so that's how we landed with Philemon. Just to speak um, about the next few weeks, just to give you a little idea of the schedules, we come into December, what's happening on Wednesday nights, we will have, uh, tonight we'll be in the middle of Philemon, and then next week, when there won't be, I think next week we don't have a one or the other programs, but we do have pastor's class again next week, we will meet and finish off Philemon next Wednesday night, so we'd love to have you all here for that. And then on the 18th of December, we have um, begun the process and are almost finished uh, with uh, ordaining or getting ready to ordain Jacob Prince. Many of you know Jacob, his family. Jacob serves and leads our high school ministry here. And um, he's coming up here, I think it's the 13th of December. He will graduate with his Master's of Divinity from seminary. A lot of these guys you may not realize... Uh, while they're working a full-time job here, like Jacob, he has a kid and a family, and uh, he's been taking seminary this entire time as he served our church. And so uh, he's going to joyfully come to the conclusion of uh, finishing that season of his life. And so he'll finish with his master's here in December, and we're going to move forward. Uh, in fact, this past week, a little bit of the process and how it works, we uh, the deacons affirm him, and then this past week, actually yesterday, uh, we sat as a council and examined him and asked him all the tough questions that he had to answer, and uh, he passed that and did a wonderful job. This Sunday, we'll bring his name to the church, and there'll be ballots out there, kind of like we do with deacons every year, to affirm him as a church body, and then expecting that all to go well, uh, we will proceed on the 18th, that's two weeks from tonight, with ordaining Jacob Prince. And so, give you a little bit of idea of the next couple weeks, what that looks like on Wednesday nights. Now, having said that, uh, we're going to be in Philemon tonight. Somebody did ask me earlier if we could start having uh, theme nights for pastor's class. Um, children have theme nights of Christmas sweaters. So uh, my four-year-old daughter walked through here a minute ago, walked up to me, and she's got all kinds of stuff on. But she brought a full page of stickers, glitter stickers. She had put them all over her face, but she had saved one for me. And so right here next to my lapel, I have a glitter sticker. So I'm now participating in crazy Christmas night as a part of tonight. So you're welcome to join in. Uh, but maybe we can have some fun pastor's class uh, dress-up nights if y'all want to be a part of that. <laughs> all right, so let's, uh, let's jump into the book of Philemon. And uh, walk through just the middle of the book. We'll be in the middle, and then I'll be finishing it off next week as well. Uh, we'll be walking uh, in particular through verses 8 um, through uh, 16. 
And so I'd like to read that and then say a short prayer. And then we'll just walk through this section, in particular looking at how the gospel impacts relationships. How when people come to know Christ and enter the family of God, it changes how we relate to one another. And uh, this particular section will test that. You'll begin, we'll just look at the ways in which this happens. Let me just read it to you from Philemon chapter 1. He said some initial greetings, and even as, as a, before he makes this ask coming up in verse 8, he said some comments to encourage him, to say, we, we really have a lot in common, I think a lot of you, but then now he's going to make this uh, ask of Philemon for Onesimus. So let me read it to you here, beginning verse 8. It says, accordingly, though I am bold enough, this is Paul, by the way, accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Now I'm sending him back to you. Sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted for you from you for a while. And that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's, let's say a short prayer to bless our reading of his word tonight. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that you would... Remind us of how the gospel transforms how we relate to others. May these few moments together tonight be an encouragement to us of the great hope of how it changes our hearts and also the hearts of the believers that are around us. So you, may you bless our time here in the book of Philemon tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's think just before we jump in, in particular, how... Things are different between us and other believers. Let me give this example. Um, when you start to work at a particular place, you go into that job, and when you become an employee of that company, the relationship you have changes. Th things are altered to that particular place. For example, when I work here, I'm given keys. I can get in and out of certain doors. Uh, if you work at a particular job, you have keys, you have access, you begin to have obligations, right? If you have a, at your particular job where you work, you feel obligated. You have responsibilities and people have responsibility to you. There's certain things people are supposed to do for you, to help you, to work alongside of you. 
And all of a sudden, when you join a company, there are all of these things that change about how you relate to a group of people. And if you've ever thought, if you've ever changed jobs or changed companies, it's amazing how everything from that one job goes completely away. Keys, responsibility, expectations, access, everything. And then the new job completely takes over, right? So, so I want you to think about those, that relationship and connection and think in the same terms of when you come to faith in Christ, you now come into the body and the fellowship of the church and your relationships, your access, the responsibility you have towards others and the responsibility they have towards you and the benefits you receive all are part of being in the body. You all of a sudden walk into a group of people that we now relate to each other completely different than we do the world. And I'm not saying that we don't care for people who are not believers. We want to see them come to faith in Christ. We want to love them. But there is a sense of being a part of the family of God that we are obligated to each other. The gospel changes how we do relationships. It changes how we interact. And so what I'd like to do with this section here and taking that idea is just walk through a few different ways in which the gospel actually changes how we interact with each other. Here's the first one. Um, what I tried to do tonight, I think if it made it through on your handout, I have the point. I mean, I'm giving it, it's like softball note-taking, right? I've given you the point, and I think if it made it through, does it, did I bold some words on there? Sweet, they made it through too. I think Christina uh, did the fancy stuff and bolded it on the screen too. So we, we're making it real simple uh, to see what we're talking about in the text. So the first, first thing on your notes there is the gospel makes us teachable. It makes us teachable. We're, we're willing to learn. Now as a part of that, look at verse 8 and listen to how Paul approaches Philemon. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. So he says, look, I, I have some apostle authority. I could look at you and just say, do this. I know that you should obey the Lord. So it's easy for me to just look at you and say, you have to obey the Lord. He said, but notice how he approaches him. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. He, he takes a different approach than when he looks at another believer, is not just coming along and saying, do this. He says, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to make a plea for you to obey. He says, I'm Paul, and he says at this time, he's an old man. He's not a young man at this point. Um, and then we know at this point he's a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Some people date this book, I think, early 60s, 80s, 62, 63. We're looking at a Roman imprisonment here. We're looking at where Onesimus would have fled uh, Colossae and then headed to Rome and at that point been uh, wandering through the city. And so that's where he would have run into Paul in this probably house arrest or prison or wherever he may, have, may would have been, he connected with Onesimus. And so as a part of this, he says, as an old man, now sitting in prison, 
I'm going to appeal to you. And so just to, to pause on this, to this idea of appeal, and I, I saw this in there too. If you even notice uh, the end of verse 14, I didn't point this out. I didn't put the verse there. Notice at the end of verse 14, it says, um, that you might not do it by compulsion, but of your own accord. He, he wants Philemon to make this decision himself. Now, he says with all confidence, you're going to say, yeah, <laughs> right? But there's a sense at which he understands when he appeals to him that he, as a believer, will respond rightly. In other words, when the gospel comes into your life, you become a teachable person. A true believer, when confronted with their sin, repents of sin. A true believer, when confronted with something they ought to obey the Lord, obeys the Lord. There is a sense in which, inside of a follower of Christ, they will do what's expected. That's why I'm, you see Paul here say, I'm going to appeal to you because I know you're going to do what's right. And here's where I would say there's a sense of understanding from his side that inside of the person, it is the spirit and them that will create the obedience, not Paul. Paul's not going to pressure or force or push anybody into obedience. So, so this is a tempting thing for us as believers to do. Anybody ever feel tempted to do this? If you're married, if you have children. Now, sometimes with children, there's a bit of discipline that's required. Or if you're dealing with somebody you know has not done something right. The temptation is for me to not only be the person who confronts, but for me to be the person who forces their heart to listen to what they ought to do. Anybody ever tempted to do this? The sense I know that if I just push them hard enough and I put just enough pressure, I can make them do what they ought to do. But in reality, my job is not to bring about obedience. That's the person and the work of the Holy Spirit inside of them. If you truly believe the Holy Spirit's at work inside of them, you need to trust the Spirit to do the Spirit's part and you to do your part. So, so what I mean by this is that it is tempting to pressure results that you can't make happen. It's real frustrating, though, because what you find out is you can't actually make them happen. Anybody feel this as well? Somebody you believe needs to be obeying the Lord and doing right, and you just keep pushing and pressuring, and they may, for a bit, act like they agree with you. They may cave and show it, but ultimately, they never agreed. So, so let me press this one step further. And this is something as a pastor, as someone who sometimes is called to be put in positions where I know somebody is walking into sin and I need to step in in love and tell them what they're doing is wrong. So let me tell you something that I personally have learned doing it. I've had to learn that if the Holy Spirit is genuinely inside that person, when I speak, the Holy Spirit's going to have to change their heart. Like, I have to trust the Spirit as I appeal. And, and it, if they are truly a believer, when I have that conversation, then the Spirit's going to work. I can't do the Spirit's job. Some of you, 
uh, in your marriage or some family relationship, you probably need to hear this a little bit tonight because you've been trying to force somebody to obey God. You can't. And, and so to pull back on this, just again, Paul making this appeal because he trusts the spirit of God and the gospel to bring about obedience. So what do you do? How do you handle this appeal? So let me just give a couple little things that I would mention to you uh, about things I would do. I, I would, when I do this, I would make sure that you are praying for the person. Nothing makes you more dependent upon the Spirit of God and God's work as when you are praying, right? You, you are trusting God to do it. So when you're dealing with somebody and you know they're doing something sinful, and you're having the conversation, ask God to change their heart. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to play a role. Paul plays a role here. He's going to say it. God's got to be the one to act. It's the same way when people get saved. You can't force somebody to be saved. You've just got to trust the Lord to act. So right now, you, I'm not saying you don't confront somebody. I, don't hear me wrong. But Paul is confronting them. What I am saying is you can't make them. And so... You need to be in prayer. And, and the second thing I would say, and this is what I'm already kind of saying, is you need to present the truth. You need to step up, take what you know is true, and say, as clear and as plain and as kind as you can be, here is the truth. I'm not, I'm not telling you to dumb it down or back off with it. I'm just telling you, you're not there to pressure it. Now, the last thing I'll say in particular, and this is what I've been saying all the whole time, is lean on the Holy Spirit. I've just had to tell myself, when I'm having a conversation or I'm having some of these difficult spots, I just got to trust the Spirit of God to do the work. So when, when you see Paul making his appeal here, he says, I could just command it. He says, look, I'm just going to appeal because I know that you're going to make the right decision. So ultimately, you have to remind yourself of this. A true believer, when confronted of sin, will respond through the Holy Spirit with repentance to the Lord. Allow the Lord to do his part of the work. So uh, last thing I'll say is I think uh, some people say, well, that, well, he's real stubborn. I have a theory. I think everybody's stubborn. I haven't not, I've never met a person who's not stubborn. Some people are more openly stubborn. Some people are more quietly stubborn. You know, the person will think they're passively stubborn, right? They appease you for about five minutes, and they go right back to doing whatever they wanted, right? Everybody's stubborn. Everybody is just, my, my point is to say, you have to let, you can't force their heart. You have to let the Lord do it. And so, if I can encourage you tonight, trust the Spirit of God to do the Spirit's work. All right, so there's, there's the first one there. That the gospel makes us teachable people. We're willing to hear things and to respond to them. I am aware that my voice is not what it normally is. And uh, I have been fighting this for a little bit. I promise you I have... Uh, been to the doctor. Some of you are concerned about me. You said it. And I've gotten more and more medicine. We'll get in there. It just takes a while, right? 
I turned 40 this year and I'm just falling apart, right? <clears throat> I don't. I know there's a few folks that got a year or two on me in here, so I understand. All right, so the second thing is the gospel creates a tight connection. There, there is a connection that is between believers that is family-like, and it's a very close one. And we're going to see Paul use a few different terms here. <clears throat> we'll look at each one of them. Look at the first term he uses with the gospel here. He says, I appeal to you for, and notice how he describes Onesimus. He says, my child. He says, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So what he means here is he became his spiritual father. You really get the sense he led him to the Lord. Or if anything, whoever led him to the Lord brought him there. And he just, the mentor and the one who discipled and grew Onesimus was Paul. He had invested his life. He looked and said, this is my child in the ministry. This should be common in the church. <clears throat> we should all be investing in people. So that we can look around and say to certain folks, these are my spiritual children. You ought to have people that look to you. If you're walking with God and you're carrying on, you ought to have people around to you that you've invested in or spent time with that look to you for spiritual counsel. This is a right relationship. This should happen all over the church. We should be investing in people that are less mature than us in the faith. They don't always have to be less in age. It's just less mature in the faith. Somebody you discipled or have invested in. So to go back to what I was mentioning earlier, let's think in terms of this relationship of father and son. You can parent child if you want to take it that far. <clears throat> this is one of the most precious relationships in all of humanity. Think about the depth. For those of you, either it's, and some of you have experienced some brokenness in these relationships. But think about the depth of either from you to your children or you to your parents. Think about the closest relationship you've had. And think about how deep and tight that connection is. I mean, it's a, it can be a very close connection between parent and child. It comes with, and I, I categorized it four ways, and I mentioned some of these earlier. There's access, responsibility, benefits and love here's what i mean when you engage as a part of the family of god you have a particular bit of access that you don't normally have with everybody else there is a level of connection that we treat each other with that is not with people who are not other believers but you can sit down with another believer and within 10 minutes have some very deep and powerful conversation because we as a part of the family of god have this connection same way it works with Let's just take parent-child. My, my favorite, I'll give this example of my children. Sometimes you'll be out in a crowd and uh, your kids get a little disoriented. You know, your kids will walk up and they'll hold on to your leg or they'll kind of grab onto you a little bit. Now, I forget, I was somewhere the other day with uh, one of my children and there was another dad or guy that was standing there and he kind of walked over and went to grab a hold of him and looks up It's like, oh, it's not dad, right? <laughs> and, and so... Again, the analogy there is that 
there's not sense of like access there. It's not like I can't just go over and hug this strange man, right? But if you are father, son, it's like, it's always a connection. So the same with us as believers. There's this constant gospel connection that we should have. That there is an access and connectivity to each other. That we allow, we're open to each other. And we're there for each other in a way that is a part of the family we put there. It's responsibility. Um, we, father, son, I probably don't have to illustrate that too far. The responsibility the son has to the father. The responsibility the father has to the son. Taking care of the son. The, father is, the son's supposed to honor the father. The same way in the family of God, you're not just coming to church to see a lesson and go home. You're here and there's responsibility you have to the body. You're a part of the family. And so when he speaks to him as his son, he has somebody he knows is responsible to the Lord. Uh, benefits, and what I mean by that is that with my son, there's a lot of benefits of being my child, right? I pay for a whole lot of stuff. I mean, it's just, and, and I'll even say in reverse, there's a lot of benefits of being my son's father. Right? There, there's a lot of joys. There's a lot of blessings. There's a lot of things that make me really happy and proud. And so there's, again, there are really great benefits about being a part of this family of God. The gospel changes how we relate to each other. And you see it right here in the connectivity that they have. And then the final one is love. And I'll press that to this second uh, uh, verse here. I'm sending him back to you, sending, and he has this phrase, I'm sending my very heart. The, the very center of his feelings and emotions and compassion. You know, one of the hardest things to do in this world sometimes is to feel loved. And that's where the body of Christ should make you feel loved. And so that's a part of being a part of the family of God. And so when he says, I'm sending my very heart with Onesimus. The, the third uh, word I want to draw out here. In verse 16, no longer is a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. And then he uses this term as a beloved brother. So, particularly in the, in the New Testament, you um, see this uh, term when you speak of brother. It's, and, and even like, I don't know if I appreciated this growing up as much, but you go to church and, you know, for a time, if I remember early on in my ministry, there were people walk up, Brother Mike would be my title, right? Brother Mike, when somebody would come up and talk to you. And you think, well, is that just, you know, Pastor Mike or whatever you want to come up? But when we say brother, there's actually a, a really good biblical concept going there. That when we look at each other and say brother and sister, we're, we're referring to the family we have and, and the connections that we have together. And so there's a responsibility that you even have with that idea of a beloved brother. So I just wanted to draw those phrases out to say that when the gospel comes and you have this Onesimus who uh, we'll talk about in a minute ran away and stole some stuff and, you know, whatever he had done, he came to faith in Christ and now here he is bound together because of the gospel. So the gospel creates a tight connection. Let me press it a, a bit further. Paul, Paul makes this point. The gospel makes us useful. And this comes out of verse 10 and 11. 
there's a real play on words here. Some of you are familiar with this. There's actually two different plays on words. I'll press the, the second one. I'm not 100% sure if it's all completely there, but I'll show it to you. Um, the first is with this term useful because the name Onesimus was a common name for a slave during that time, and it would be, his name would mean useful. So when it actually is speaking about useful or useless, it's a play off of his very name, Onesimus. So uh, let me read it to you. Verse 10, I appeal to, you for my ch- there, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So the first play on words really happens with um, useful, useless. He becomes useful to the Lord now that he is. And, and this is simply put, that when you come to faith in Christ, you become useful. Your life becomes meaningful. God can use you once the gospel comes in. And it's really what he's talking about here. Once he came to faith in Christ, let me tell you how God is using this man. That's what he's pointing out. The terms here, uh, useful and useless, aren't a direct one-to-one. So he's not actually using Onesimus's name there. It's another term. It's very similar. Uh, I think it was like Krestos is the term. And uh, so it's very similar to say when it says he is useful, it's, the word is a couple letters off from the Greek word for Christ. So now that he is useful, now that he is, and he's using the term for Christ. Uh, so it's just a small, again, we, we're guessing he's doing some play on words because he's already doing it with his name. And it's very possible he's even doing it with the term Christ. That now because of the gospel or because of Christ, he is useful to the kingdom. So meaning our life is no longer wasted, but can have an impact. Now, let me press this a little bit further. Number four. The gospel gives us a common goal. And I'll just pause for a moment. I've been working through this. I'll get a little bit to this tonight. This book does bring, I think, some challenging questions um, about how the Bible addresses slavery. Because we're dealing with a bond servant or slave here. We're going to work through a little bit of it, and I'll try to do more of it next week. So just as we process this question, it's one that comes up in this book, and I'll do a little bit of work on it tonight, and then hopefully next week deal with it a little bit more. But the, common, the gospel gives us a common goal. Notice verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment, and I'll just draw out this short phrase, for the gospel. Now the reason that the reconciliation that's going to happen in this text, the reason it happens I believe, comes with this particular goal in mind. Everybody, Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul, all have the goal of the gospel. He says, he is useful to me for the gospel. You know why he's going to be useful to you, uh, Philemon? It's going to be for the gospel. You know why you're going to change how you see him? Because it's for the gospel. That is the common goal. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you are not particularly close to somebody, and then the two of you go somewhere or do something with a person you don't know so well, and you are set with a common goal in front of you, and you leave bonded in a way you were never bonded before. I, in fact, I had this uh, experience. Um, when I went through my doctoral program two or three years ago, I did it, uh, the same program, with 
Uh, you, many of you know Justin Pasley, who we sent to San Diego to revitalize First Baptist uh, Pacific Beach. Um, but he was our North Campus pastor at the time, Mallard Creek Campus, I should say. And uh, we had worked kind of with each other, but at a distance. You know, we knew each other, but I wouldn't say we were particularly good friends. And so then we're sent into this program, we're sent to these classes, and all of a sudden, where we were just one of a crowd, now we were the only two that knew each other in this particular group. And for all of the classes we sat through together, we built a friendship and a bond working through our, our projects and our papers and everything we did. By the time we were done, there was a friendship and a bond that was unlike what we had even close to before. There is something about when you are facing something and you're shoulder to shoulder with a common goal that bonds a group of people together. And so, if the gospel is your goal and someone else's goal, it creates unity. If the gospel is not your goal, it creates disunity. So just, and it, I'll say it like this, if you have an evangelistic heart, and somebody else has an evangelistic heart, it will wash over a lot of our differences. We probably wouldn't argue or fight or struggle as much if we're really worried about bigger things. And so as we have a heart for lost people, as we focus on the gospel, as we have that common goal, it actually breaks down walls. And what, I think one of the reasons that this whole thing's going to work is because everybody just cares about the gospel. They're willing to let the other stuff go because there's one important goal as we all face it. So, so that's, a, that's a bond that's given here through the gospel. So the gospel gives us a common goal. Let me give you a fifth one. The gospel compels us to do, uh, to right our wrongs. Now, now this is an interesting thing here, and I, I, I guess I'll give this caveat. I'll make an attempt at it. So forgive me if uh, you, you make it through it with me here. But here's what I'd like to say is one of the things that's difficult is how Paul will sometimes, not always, every time, condemn slavery when it's happening. Uh, but one of the things that we'd see is that sometimes the systems and the mechanisms that are going on, instead of worrying about every time fixing them, Paul's just trying to help a believer figure out how to deal within them. And he's saying, Onesimus... I'm not, not going to try to fix it all. I'm going to talk to the person who was your slave owner. But Onesimus, I'm, I, at this point, no matter what, you've broken the law. And so you as a believer now need to go fix your wrong. I, I know it may not have been right that you were held like you were or whatever, how it played out. Still, you need to make what you've done right. And so he's encouraging him here. Notice verse 13 and 14. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But then look what he's phrased. He said, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent. He said, look, I want to make this thing right. Even, I don't know how broken or where this plays out. I, I just, Onesimus is now a believer and anything of his past that he's broken or done wrong, just go and make it right. Wherever you've done it, make it right. It says, do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So he sends him back 
So, and evidently at this point, we'll, we'll get to this next week in the text, but what he's done is he's not only just run away, but he's taken some stuff. Because Paul said, I gotta pay you, I'll pay you back. He's stolen some things as he left. So, so he wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a believer, he wasn't a follower, he didn't have the gospel, he hadn't been regenerated. And so he's running away, stealing stuff, doing wrong things, and he says, now that you have done what was wrong, you need to go back and make it, let's make it right. And in particular, I want to press this just one step further. In particular, you need to be made right with your brother in Christ. He's saying, I know Philemon. He's a believer. Onesimus, I know you're a believer now. Let's get this thing right. Between you two brothers in Christ. So ultimately, I would say the gospel compels us to go and make what we've done wrong right. We, we need to think about where we have wronged people number six the gospel gives purpose to our lives you know sometimes when god's going to work in our life he takes a strange path, right? I mean, it's not a path you would expect. Particularly, maybe some of you who were converted as adults, you came to faith in Christ as an adult, you may have taken a strange path to get there. It may have been an odd way that the Lord had to walk you through it. Notice verse 15. Because he just encouraged him. To make this right, verse 15, but for this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. He slides in there and he says, I know he stole from you. I know he broke the law when he ran away. But maybe that thing that we, good, bad, or however it was, maybe God's going to take that. He's not going to say that was good but he's going to use it for his good. And, and that's why, he, I like how he says it, this is perhaps why. <laughs> and that's a phrase you could say for a lot of your life? This is perhaps why God did this. And we're, we're sitting on the edge of it, we're going to, not going to get to it till next year, because the pastor's going to start uh, Matthew chapter 1, preaching through the Christmas season. But we went right up to the edge of Romans eight twenty eight Sunday. So we can start off the new year looking at Romans 8, 28. We know that God works all things for the good of those who love it. doesn't mean that all things are good. It means that we have a redeeming God who's able to take all things and work them for our good. But it's only for those who love him, those who are believers. So the promise is held specifically to believers. God's going to work things for their good. He can redeem bad. And so I hear it in this verse. This is perhaps why he ran away. So that God might save him, and now when I send him back to you, God has redeemed this whole thing. I mean, what a great testimony of how God can work. This is where the gospel compels us to do right our wrongs, but ultimately it gives this purpose to the chaos of what we live in. Like, I don't know why, but my God's able to take wrong and redeem it for right. I mean, what, I just, it's not just that he is redeeming you. He is taking the sinful, broken world and redeeming it for you. 
using it for your good. It's, it's, a, it's a miraculous thing to know just how wide his redemption is. All right, so uh, let's, let's hit this last one here, and then we'll stop here and then pick up for next week. Number seven, the gospel changes our status. <clears throat> and we begin to see Paul pressing on the idea of as I'm sending him back, maybe you're not going to still put him as a slave status anymore. Notice verse 16. He says, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. He's no longer going to be a slave to you. He's a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the Lord, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He said the status isn't just going to change with his spiritual condition. In the flesh, his status will change with you. There's an illusion here. Uh, uh, to his status changing as a slave. He says, now that he is useful to you, he is now useful for the kingdom of God. Now when he comes home to you, put him in action for the kingdom. Allow him to serve the Lord in that way. And what a beautiful picture of redemption of all of how what was broken is now made right for the gospel between believers. Our status is changed. No longer a bondservant but a beloved brother. What a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? No longer slaves to sin, but now called sons and daughters of God. No longer are we bound by the devil and this world, but we've now been freed to walk with the Lord. It's the beautiful picture of the gospel, but that same picture that has happened with us also happens in between us. That we now treat each other as beloved brothers and so we see how the gospel changes our status how we see each other so uh to to draw the whole thing together back to the picture of how we treat each other is completely different when you're a part of the family of god benefits responsibilities access love it all changes when you come to faith in Christ, it changes, and now we are willing to forgive. Now, now we're gracious to each other, and now we have our eyes fixed on the gospel ministry. And as we do that, all this other stuff kind of fades because we are focused on what the Lord would have us do. It's a beautiful picture. We'll, we'll conclude it next week. There's several names mentioned at the end here. We'll talk a little bit more about this uh, story, but it's one in which... We can genuinely see how the gospel redeems broken relationships. Let me pray for us and then we'll end our time together tonight. I'd like to give you a chance to pray through a little bit of what I talked about. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning, people that you, would, you know they're in sin, but you... You know God has to change their heart? It'd probably be good for us to take a short moment and pray for them right now. Somebody you know needs to turn. Somebody you, you, you'd really like to pressure them there, but you know it's going to have to be the Lord. Pray for their soul and their heart right now.
I'll ask a second question. I'd just be curious to know this for you. Have you been, have you been holding a grudge against someone within the body of Christ? Is there something particular that you're not allowing the gospel to wash over? And it may mean that you, you need to go talk to them. I'm not saying you just let it fall. I'm just saying you're just holding it. You, you need to pray tonight that you need, you need the ability to forgive, to maybe speak truth and love, to not let bitterness take a root in your heart. Ask the Lord to help you with that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your ministry among us. Lord, how you have forgiven us of so much. Lord, we don't even, we don't even grasp the depths of our sin. We don't grasp the depths of what it required from Christ to save us. We don't know. Our sin is deeper than we even can imagine. So Lord, make us a gracious people. Make us a people that, Lord, are willing to forgive each other and carry grace around in the same way you have given it to us. Help us to be kind to each other. Strengthen us as we love each other, as we are called to as a part of the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that in this room you would give us many sons and daughters in the faith that we might win to faith in Christ and grow up in their faith and encourage. May you make us disciple makers in that regard. And then ultimately, Lord, we do thank you tonight that we stand before you free and no longer bound to this world. We give you praise and honor and glory for the status that we hold as sons and daughters of you. We thank you for that. We give you the praise. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.